lady spitting at the knickerjacks, businessman with a needle and a spoon, coyote chewing on a cigarette pack of young boys going howling at the moon, head darling sleeping on the blacktop, head darling running through the trees, honey, head darling leaving for the next town, lesson my sense catches up with me. Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for three billboards outside Ebbing's Missouri. Ebbing's or Ebbing? Ebbing. Ebbing, just one Ebbing. It only ebbs once, right? Okay, so not like tides. It flows many times. Right, no, it only ebbs one and flows one. That's just going to confuse me if you say it flows many times. Uh, my name is Tom Chick. I am here with Christian Molgransky. Uh, just, uh, you can refer to me as Zoo Girl. <laughs> with... Our three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri tagline, Tom Chick. Woody Harrelson's best since Edge of 17. <laughs> Do you think they noticed that that wasn't Kelly Wand? They might have. I was going to say a uh, postpartum Fargo. Oh, I like it because she had a baby in Fargo. She was mm-hmm. pregnant. Very good, Dingus. Yep. That one took me a moment. I was yep. thinking, yeah. Uh, how about this one? Uh, better than two bumper stickers in Fort Bend County, Texas. Is that too deep a pull? Like, is that a two current events related thing? I think so. We'll get into that in a moment. But first, uh, in case folks are wondering, I'm not Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand is on assignment in a place that he can't be arsed to get to the Internet. We were going to bring you a Murder on the Orient Express podcast uh, but he couldn't make it to the internet, and he's internetless for another couple weeks. So you get just me and Dingus. And I have to tell you, don't get your hopes up about the synopsis. <laughs> it's letting the listeners know. Uh, all right, so Dingus, tell the folks what movie we saw this weekend, but don't spoil it. I'll do the synopsis. Actually, I'm not doing the synopsis, but we do have someone doing the synopsis. That will be all the spoiler stuff, Dingus. So give the listeners the basics without spoilers. All right. Well, this week we saw three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Real quick, can I ask you another question about um, procedural question about the title? Yes. How do you feel about capitalizing prepositions? I really, uh, I really agree with the way that the title is shown in the film. I really <gasps> liked that. Oh, I'm very unhappy about it. No. Why don't you I'd like it? I learned... love that it's a lowercase outside and that there's a comma between Ebbing and Missouri. Well, the comma, of course, is fine. That's that's accurate. But I'd always learned that if a preposition is longer than four letters, you capitalize oh. it, like beyond, inside, outside, within, above, you know, only like into or over. Like oh, kind of like the letters, reverse of spelling numbers. Kind of right. Yeah, exactly. Like the shorter. Um, well, yeah, yeah, along those lines. That the the rule is the length. But I I don't know where I got that from. I don't know if it's like AP style or. Chicago. Boy, I had never heard that at all. I just knew that uh, when it's a preposition, you don't capitalize it. And when I saw that on the screen, I was like, oh, I kind of like that. Uh, it's too hefty a word to not be capitalized, I feel. I don't know. Mm, all, right. all right. Well, so the thing is, so far, the podcast is 50-50 on this movie. Um, I will admit that the first couple times I wrote it down when I was writing notes and whatnot, I called it Ebbing's Montana. I'm getting that too. <laughs> it's rural. Because, it begins with an M. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> and Idaho is supposed to feature into it, which makes more sense if you're in Montana. I don't know what was going on in my head. Oh, but, that's, that guy's come a long way, come to think of it. Right, Idaho. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah. But anyway, I, I yeah, we are 50-50 on the preposition question. 
Uh, grammar nerds, write in, please. Anyway, we saw three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, a 2017 black comedy drama movie about murder not on the Orient Express. <laughs> uh, it was written and directed by Martin McDonough. It stars. <laughs> it's. <laughs> It stars Frances McDonald. Wait, what did you call her? <laughs> I called her. I called her the same name as the director. Uh, it's Frances oh. McDormand. Sorry about that. Yeah, it is. I had to like when I was writing my notes. I'm on the last page of my journal, and I had to squeeze her name in uh, on one line, and uh, I just read it wrong. So it's Frances McDormand. Uh, Caleb Landry Jones, Sam Rockwell, Lucas Hedges. Sandy Martin, Abby Cornish, Woody Harrelson, and Zelko Ivanek. Mm, who is Sandy Martin? The mom? Yeah, she's Mama. Mama Dixon. Dixon. Right, okay. Yeah. I looked up that woman. That woman's got 128 credits. She's got a ton of stuff. And it's mainly <laughs> TV because I don't think I'd seen her before. And I, I loved her. And I was like, wow, who is, where has she been hiding all of her career? And she's been on television mainly. I think she was in Seven Psychopaths, but I don't remember anything about that movie, to be right. quite honest. You know what? Uh, me too, Dingus. I was, yeah. I, huh. We right, did a we'll podcast get... on it, and I don't remember I anything about it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. For, as far yeah. as I'm concerned, Martin McDonough is just in Bruges and this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I'm with you on that. Anyway, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is rated R for violence, language throughout, and some sexual references. I think it should also be uh, uh, for uh, violence to advertising. I I think it should also be about because there's a reference to a somebody who has a big pot joint. <laughs> Does he call it? He doesn't call it a pot joint. No, but that's just uh, I don't know how to talk like that. I'm I'm a square. He might say they're marijuana cigarettes. Uh, there is smoking in this. I'd just like folks to know. I Tom Chape. I was right. And, and, and I would I would say that it should be rated R as well for flicking of cigarettes after no, you share them with every, No, everyone should see that. That uh, flick more than anything like. I don't really wish I smoked it. I mean, smoking's cool, and there's that whole thing where you light the cigarette and you're cupping the lighter, and um, and there's the whole you know fiddling with it with your fingers and stuff. But that flick thing to get rid of a cigarette butt, oh, that was just so hot. That was such a cool moment, mm-hmm. like that yeah. right there. That was, that is all I needed to know about Frances McDormand's character. The way she just flicked that cigarette, that was so awesome. Yeah. All people yeah. should see that. Children, adults. <laughs> People, elders, people on their deathbeds. That was a grand moment. Yeah, that's a great non kind of physical gesture, by the way. I agree with you on that because I, I did actually write a, I wrote a short story once about just that, that feeling of, of flicking that cigarette outside your window of your car, and which, which is something that I hate now. I don't want to see a cigarette smoker fl- flicking a cigarette outside their car because it's just littering. But, but just that is, feeling, that feeling of just. Right, how decisive it is, and the snap of it, and how cool. What is it? I'm thinking of a movie where somebody flicks a cigarette into someone else's chest, like it's a Ooh. real dismissive, like "screw you," and it explodes in a shower of like sparks. What? Do you know what that is? I know I've seen it in at least a couple of movies. No, I don't even know. Okay, but uh, yeah, the thing about it, Dingus is because there are fewer smoker these da- smokers around these days, uh, especially here in places like California, it's all right for them to litter because there aren't as many of them. If you're going to look that cool. Oh, That's right. fine because there are fewer of you. Go ahead, flick your cigarettes to look cool. I'm okay with that these days. Nowadays. 
fine. All right, so uh, it, let's see. Critically, uh, I guess we have to go. Yeah, with numbers now. Yeah, so uh, this has not opened. This is a very limited release. It's only in four theaters. Uh, the weekend that uh, Dingus and I have seen it, it's opening wider. Uh, Fox Searchlight is expanding it to uh, 600 theaters next weekend, which shows some confidence in it. It did very well at a per theater average, which just means, hey, those of us here in L.A., we're, we're psyched to see it. Uh, so we'll actually maybe get some numbers uh, n- meaningful uh, next week. Uh, we'll even, I think, maybe get a cinema score, Dingus. And I'm guessing B. I'm guessing that the audience is going to be a little bit nonplussed. They're going to go, uh, B, uh, when they come out of it on Friday night. Metacritic, however, the average rating from various reviews, 87. So oh. doing fairly well. And on Rotten Tomatoes, 94% of the reviews are positive. So uh, it's doing very well critically. Dingus, it is now time for the three Bilbopsis in Ebbing Misropsis. What? And it, since Kelly Wan is not here, this one will be done by Fox Searchlight Pictures. Oh, my gosh. And I'm just going to read it. Here we go. This is uh, – I didn't write this. This is straight from Fox Searchlight Pictures. They distributed this movie and co-financed it. After months have passed without a culprit in her daughter's murder case, Mildred Hayes makes a bold move, painting three signs – Leading into her town with a controversial message directed at William Willoughby, the town's revered chief of police. When his second-in-command, Officer Dixon, an immature mother's boy with a penchant for violence, gets involved, the battle between Mildred and Ebbing's law enforcement is only exacerbated. (laughs) In synopsis. There you go. That's that's what Fox Searchlight Pictures wants you to know if you're considering seeing this and you don't mind spoilers. I like the idea that she painted the three signs. She thinks – they think she painted the signs. Yeah, yeah. All they, right. they didn't see the movie. They're just figuring she went out there one day with a, with, with a roller and a paintbrush uh, and did that herself. So that whole thing where he finds the signs while they're, paint, while they're putting them up and the guy has the confrontation with him, that whole setting the table for his racism, none of that matters to them. Not for the synopsis, Dingus. It didn't make it into the synopsis. Yeah. So. All right. All right. So since I read the synopsis, Dingus, you go first. What did you think of three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri? What's an over and what's an under? All right. So uh, we're moving into spoiler territory now. Yes, just we so are. Everybody knows. Yeah. Um, this it was really hard for me to come up with uh, an over and under for this movie. Um, mainly, it was hard for me to come up with an under because I really like this movie a lot. You mean it's harder uh, for you to come up with an over, you're saying? Uh, no, I, I came oh. up with a couple of overs. Okay, I liked it's hard it a lot. You said it was harder for you to come up with an under because you liked it a lot. Normally, it's like you like something a lot. To... There's plenty of things under, but go ahead. I, I know that's usually the case, but I couldn't think of movies that were in this – that were try- – you know, I was kind of going with you know parents seeking justice or like a mother seeking justice or uh, even revenge movies – um, and trying to find something that I could bracket it with was really hard for me. Okay. Um, over was was fairly easy because I, I like this movie so much. There are a lot of movies that this that this movie called to mind. Um, and I and I was trying and I was trying to decide between like the one just exclusively uh, talk about. Um, Parents seeking justice, or somebody seeking justice for parents, or whatever—I don't know. I was, I was having, a, I was having a difficult time. So, anyway, I, 
I would put the limey just over this because um, uh, I really like that sort of like seeking justice even though it's it, these are both kind of revenge movies and then under it and this is way under it i would put the gladiator but i really i really did like this a lot Wait, the russell crowe thing yeah ew gross i know i know it's gross <laughs> i know it's totally gross he's but every seeking time justice I kept... for his dead child in the gladiator man i don't remember that movie <laughs> yeah well the the emperor that he's serving gets killed his family gets killed his his wife gets uh violated and uh and then he's thrown into slavery and he has to take revenge it's not like a courtroom kind of a drama thing obviously it's the gladiator i don't remember uh, any of that i just remember he has to fight in a gladiator thing and joaquin phoenix is there that's all i but i guess okay right so it's a he's getting justice for his murdered family all right that makes sense for gladiator that's about ridley right. scott's speed right exactly yeah so i would put the limey over this and gladiator well under it okay uh, my over-under, I actually – what I did was uh, kind of on a continuum both of how much I liked these three movies and how they tell the story revolving around the death of a child but not specifically about the child's death, mm. the aftermath. Because if you have a story about uh, someone whose child dies, what are you going to do? Nothing can upstage that. That is – just, just the enormity of that precludes anything else happening in the story. If you have a movie where the, the, the central um, event is someone's child dying. So these are three movies that ha- are, have gone beyond the death of the child and are telling a different kind of story that calls back and is based on and revolves around that child's death. And these three movies are on a continuum from a plot-driven thriller to a very introspective uh, character study, intense personal mm. drama. And my over would be Manchester by the Sea, uh, where Kenneth Lonergan, uh, it's very much about the, the aftermath of the loss of a family, of the death of children, uh, how you can cope with the universe where that happens. Uh, it's very much about grappling, too, with, with religious issues. Um, and it's an intense personal drama. This is a step below that, both in terms of how much I liked it, because Manchester by the Sea is, is beautiful. It's incredible, and I loved this movie too. This would be a little bit below that, but if you, but it's more of this is more of a plot-driven thriller kind of thing too, with a little bit of social commentary. And for that reason, it reminds me a bit of Wind River, which we also oh. saw this year, which I really like, and where the death of a child, not the murder mystery, but the death of a child, which is something that has happened to the main character, uh, that's in the backdrop of the story. And it calls um, it, the, the, the story, the thriller, the, the, the plot-driven thriller, uh, ultimately revolves around how this is part of that character's backstory. So I would put three billboards outside Ebbing, Montana, between Manchester by the Sea and Wind River, both in terms of how much I liked them and in terms of being a continuum from an intense personal drama to a plot-driven thriller revolving around the death of a child, but not specifically about that. Um, so uh, I like that you. I really like that you bring up Manchester because I didn't even think of it. I was thinking of in the bedroom when I was sort of thinking about those types of ah right like uh, that kind of personal uh, kind of personal drama in the in the way that this movie deals with that. Um, but I like that you're I like your choice of Manchester and it makes perfect sense, but especially because Lucas Hedges is in it. Yeah, yeah, I love seeing that kid now. Uh we'll talk about him more next week as well in the movie we're gonna see next week. Um uh the in the bedroom thing, Dingus, reminds me this in a way reminds me a lot of a Western. 
And in the bedroom, yeah, yeah. it has some of that as well, where it's it's you know the, the the normal people having to take justice in their own hands, in the context of a of a small community, and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. almost like this. It's it's not a frontier, but there's it's clearly this is a rural setting. There's not a big city. Ebbing, Missouri is kind of self-contained. When somebody moseys in from Idaho, that's a big deal. Uh, so there's this sense of a community grappling with uh, justice and, and, and morality and how to deal right. with that. Uh, and that's a, that's a lot of what goes on in, in the bedroom as well. Yeah. Do you remember the, the first moment? Because I, I had that exact same feeling about it, about this as a Western. Do you remember the – was there a moment where that happened for you? Because there was a moment where that happened for me. Well, um, I, we'll talk a bit about the – God, I'm so in love with Carter Burwell's soundtracks, and it's easily one of my favorite. And when she strides into the advertising office, and there's a mandolin playing. I love mandolins. Um, It it had a kind of a frontier vibe to it. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know if she was an outsider coming into town, Um, but clearly with this mandolin, which had a sort of rural frontier feel to it and she's striding into this office and she wants something um so i don't know if that's what i, I actually no ding is until the police started getting involved i don't think that it clicked for me this is like a western um but did it happen earlier than that for no you? no that is that is the exact moment that i'm referring to because because when the when the movie starts um i didn't know it was car carter burwell doing the music necessarily uh but the opening strains um, are really reminiscent of Fargo. And I, I kind of was like giggling a little bit, but not in a bad way. Just like, oh, this, you know, it's Francis McNorman. So why wouldn't I think of Fargo? And this kind of is problems. And given who the director and the writer is, it's probably going to have sort of a black comedy vibe to it, I'm imagining. And when those opening strains of music came in, I was like, okay, the, this is evocative to me of Fargo. But in that moment that you just referenced was the exact moment because she's crossing a street yeah. and it looks like a little Western street and there's a sheriff's car behind her, like yes. like like the sheriff's station over there with their horses over there. And the music shifts into that mandolin that you're talking about. And, and I just, and she has that Mien, that that face that Clint Eastwood sort of like. He's like a gunfighter. I mean, there's clearly yeah. that sort of yeah. commitment. That's sort of uh, uh, yeah, resolution. Yeah, exactly. Resolution is a good way to put it. Like this this gate that she has, where she's she is going she's going into this place, and nobody's going to stop her. And she has something. She has a purpose, and it's very much like Man with No Name. That kind of feel, and at that exact moment, that shot through the door. Uh, through the through through the uh, the glass of the door, going back a- as she's walking up to it, is exactly the moment that I thought and wrote in my notes. This feels like a western to me, and I'm so happy that you brought that up because it was it was it's really exciting to think about it in those in those terms because she has to contend with some of those same issues, but then the movie takes you in a different direction. But that moment, yeah, I'm right with you. I will say, uh, and you and I both share this, where we know nothing about a movie going in, <clears throat> in that opening shot of her considering the three rundown billboards, uh, I – and I'm sure you're the same way. Like when I'm watching a movie like that, I'm like, OK, what kind of movie is this going to be? What am I <laughs> guessing it's going to be? And also just because a lot of times we're talking about a movie, we're like, well, when did you realize this or when did you realize that? So early on, before I'm really engaged in a movie, I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure things out. So early on, I'm like, oh, this is going to be like a heist thing. And these billboards are clues, 
And I bet mm-hmm. what's going to happen because there were holes in some of the billboards. If you stand at the right angle, the word in the billboard behind <laughs> is going to like like it's going to be a solution. I bet that's what's going to happen. Like I was really thinking this was going to be some sort of heist thing with a puzzle with the billboards, and uh, that that's not what it became, of course. But uh, that was how misguided I was early on, and that's why it's so cool too, knowing nothing about a movie, because then what emerged. And this, I love this. This is this is a movie in in the Western aspect. It's it's a small community grappling with with justice, with culpability, with retribution, with accountability. Uh, but ultimately, and I love movies like this. These are movies that really talk to me. Uh, it's about simple people struggling with whether or not we live in a moral universe. Right. Uh, and I love that. I mean, these are theological, religious questions, even if you're not religious. Um, and that's that's ultimately why I really adore this movie. Um, is because that's also, I think where it eventually goes. There are also political questions as well. As, as what'd you like call them? Who, political questions. Oh, political. Right, right, right. I thought you rolled as, that as far as like one. who controls the message, who controls um, the news story, and how does that affect how justice is meted out? Right. Who is who is pushing things along, and how much money does it take to do that? And in this little town, that, that that's kind of. And I can't help but think about that now based on what you know is going on politically in, in our country and has been going on for the last year or so. Um, who is pushing the story and how the story gets pushed and how that drives justice? I find that well, fascinating. Let's because because this is what it reminded me of watching it uh, early on. Um, so in in uh, uh, Bend County, Texas, I didn't even know there was such a place. Uh, oh, Fort Bend. County, that makes more sense. Uh, a woman was driving around a truck, and she had a, a sticker on the back of it. It was a pickup truck, and she had a big old sticker across the back window that said, fuck Trump, and fuck you if you voted for him. And the the, the county sheriff posted on the sheriff's, I think, Facebook page or something, a picture of the truck and said, hey, if you've seen this driver, uh, we are considering pressing dis- – uh, not disrupting the peace, but, but some basic like misdemeanor charge. If you've seen this driver – let him or her know we want to talk to him. We'd rather resolve this with a conversation than pressing charges. Uh, and this got a lot of attention because you're allowed to drive around with a bumper sticker that says "fuck Trump" and "fuck you" if you voted for him. It's your it's First Amendment protection. Um, so the 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 county sheriff pulled the uh, the post, and uh, that that was gone. But then this woman now drove around and she stuck another sticker saying "fuck Sheriff Nels" or whatever oh and God, "fuck you" really? if you voted for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was, uh, and and this this and and what has since come out is that because this woman got so much attention, the sheriff's office was able to dig up a, a warrant on some fraud charge for her arrest, and they arrested her for that. Um, which I, you know, whatever's going on there, and she's now saying, oh, I'm I'm being persecuted politically. Uh, you know, apparently the fraud charge we can let that be resolved in court. I don't know that that's necessarily. She called attention to herself. She'd gotten in trouble for, and this basically outed her but she is protected under the first amendment to be able to drive around with a truck that says fuck trump on it um even in texas so uh it reminded me this this idea of this woman taking out these billboards uh you know that reminded me of currently what is a a a current event and the political climate and one of the things that I couldn't help think over the course of the movie is whether and how this is relevant to the current political climate in the U.S. Now, Martin McDonough wrote this. He's a playwright, and I think it shows from this movie. This movie at times plays way more like a play than a movie, and I adore that about it. 
I think that's partly why it also might get a B from CinemaScore. I think that will puzzle some people. Um, but he wrote this before, of course, Trump was elected. But I do think it has relevance and messages uh, today. And Dingus, you mentioned specifically this idea of controlling the, the message. Right. Um, as far as, So do you want to elaborate on that? Like as far as uh, well, explain what you mean by that. What and she says this specifically, and there were times in this movie where I was, <laughs> I have to admit, <laughs> until the word Google was said, <laughs> I, I know. wasn't entirely sure where we were time-wise because you know, of the that, station that, wagons. Well, that and, comic and book the that Sam Rockwell is reading, he's reading some super old like black and white comic book. Did right, and that? the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 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 reading old comic books. He's got them in his desk at work. Uh, they're using landlines. The TV that they have in their house, that Mildred and Robbie have in their house, is this old TV, and nobody seems to be accessing the internet at all. And I, I'm sure oh, you're right. Then, he does say Google. I do remember that now. Yeah, yeah. He says well, you could just Google that. Uh, at some and point. she has and a flip phone, a cell phone too. At one she point. says a, she has a flip phone that she answers a, a, later at the end, where he calls her to tell her, you know, it's not that dude. Uh, where I totally think something else is going to happen to resolve that scene. And this is another thing I love about this movie is that it loses me at some points and then pulls me right back in. And then it scares me at some points and then it's not going there. Uh, I'm really impressed with the way this movie is paced and shown. But anyway, as far as what you're talking about is concerned, I really like the way that she references that specifically, you know, having been uh, interviewed by this reporter, um, who is doing this morning show and having and saying explicitly, you know, I, I'm controlling the message and therefore I am going to be able to make this investigation go in a certain way because I am controlling the message because I, I have eyeballs on what's going on right now. Um, so I, I think that she's very much aware of that. And when she goes into Red's office and says, I'm not going to use any of these words, including anus. Don't worry. Uh, these are all the things she's done her due diligence to understand. These are the things that I can put on these billboards without getting sued. And you can't take them down based on the law. She's very clear about this. And I think politically she's she's savvy in that way as far as as far as she can being a woman who is. Or a parent who is filled with rage about this particular thing and can't get over it for good reason. Uh, but I think she's also smartly controlling the message, and I think that is very much a part of what's going on right now and has been going on for many years right now in, in, in the world. Uh, I want to before I want to get back to the the political relevance of this, but first I want to talk about uh, her character, Mildred. What's the last name? Not Pierce Hyde. What's her oh, last name? I don't remember. I'm sorry. Uh, but anyway, her character. Uh, when we saw it, there there was a woman behind us who, uh, when she uh, kicks the school children for <laughs> throwing a, uh, a soda oh, at her yes. windshield, a woman behind us goes, "I love that woman." Like she she, she like had to express her admiration uh, out loud. And, and in a way, this is a very rabble-rousing movie because Frances McDormand's character is clearly so sympathetic. Um, but one mm. of the things that I really admire about this, this screenplay, this, this script, uh, these, these characters, the writing here, uh, is how it's basically about good people all around. Um, and even 
it does a weird thing where at first you're going to assume, and this is going to get to a little bit of what you're talking about, Dingus, where the movie maybe loses you but then surprises you. I think at first you're going to assume that Sam Rockwell's character is just going to be an unrepentant racist, and he's going to be the villain. He's going to screw everything up. When he crosses the street to beat Caleb Landry Jones, you think, okay, well, this now everything's going to fall apart, and he's going to be unfettered evil and mm-hmm. sadism, and he's going to represent the law unchecked. And that's not what happens. Um, but this is this this movie is about good people all around, and, and early on that's established by showing Sheriff Willoughby coming to talk to her and saying, "Look, we've done what we can. You know, I would love to find your daughter's murderer, but what can I do?" And she is clearly just driven by uh, grief. She's not being realistic when she says things like. Take everybody's blood in town, okay? Take everybody's blood in the country. Like she just wants her daughter's killer brought to justice, and we can understand that. But we also, I think, in this scene understand that she doesn't have any realistic uh, solutions. She is just acting out of anger, and what she is doing is not making the situation better. And I think that's an important point. That is very subtle but very important important to realize early on in the movie. Mildred is an admirable character. We're supposed to, I presume, admire her and I guess root for her. But I think it's important to realize she's also a misguided character. What she is doing is just causing problems and maybe problems need to be caused. But she's also – she's she's kicking – she gets out of her car and assaults school kids. Like that Mm -hmm. is in in any – dumb comedy or whatever that would be like yeah that's hilarious but i think this movie is kind of thoughtful enough to where you're not supposed to necessarily admire that like she's frustrated and she's angry and she's doing things out of anger but kicking a a dumb kid like in a in a goofy comedy that would be fine but i think that's questionable here and i think some of the other things that she does uh i i don't think she's entirely supposed to be a sympathetic character is what I'm saying. Is, is I think the script is smart enough to show us that she's kind of misguided. I think you're right about that, and I think that one of the things I love about this is I wasn't, you know, I was expecting Woody Harrelson's character to be just this incompetent jerk, yeah, um, in charge of a racist cop and other people who just can't do things. But he's a pretty nice guy. Uh, and he's trying his best, and he tries to get that across. And that, those two scenes on the porch sitting on the swings, I, I love that setting. I love them sitting on those swings. I love it. I love the way it looks. I love just the, you know, I'm sorry to use the word optics, but I just love them sitting on swings. They're not on a porch swing. They're like on two different swings, like a swing set. It's it's a, It's a weird setting, and I really like it. The thing that I really love is this moment where he's interrogating her or talking to her in the police station. I guess it's probably after she drills the hole in the dentist's to- uh, um, thumbnail and he coughs blood on her face. And he says to her, I didn't mean to. And she gets up and she says, I know, baby. And there's, it's like all pretense has been dropped. This whole right. contention that we're doing, this whole chess match that we're playing, that we both know we're playing, just dropping it. I'm getting you to the hospital now, and he says, get, let her go. It's it's a whole different thing. I know, baby. When she says that to him, that is one of my favorite mo- favorite movie moments this year. I know, baby. And, and she's assailing a very good man, and that's another thing, too, yeah. That, yeah. that I think it makes the, the movie very 
early makes it clear this is a good man he's doing the best he can and she's mm-hmm. also like she is like she is at a certain point is basically she calls all cops wife beaters she basically says all catholics are culpable for the molesting of children like uh-huh. she's a, she's a rabble rouser and she's saying very easy broad statements uh, and generalizations about people i i think and and that's I think one of the emerging pictures of this character is that she is pitting herself against someone who means well and who's doing the best he can and who we find out is a kind of a benevolent king in this small community. Uh, and, and when he dies, he does what he can to sort of pass on uh, you know, what, what little wisdom and reassurance and, and help he can in, in the wake of his death. Like he's a, he's a great character in this. Um, yeah. And, and I think I, I think it's kind of important to realize that she's a little misguided to come at him so aggressively when there's nothing that he can do. Right. Uh, and, and so here's where I, I think the political message – here's the political message that I draw from this because as I'm watching it and I'm thinking about uh, you know, the, the contemporary political climate, and that bit comes up which I think is the, the point of the movie, but couched in a joke uh, where John Hawks comes up and says, you know, Penelope told me uh, this mm. anger just begets greater anger. Like I think that's the kind of that's kind of the point of the movie, that anger begets greater anger, that anger is not going to get you anywhere except more angry, and it doesn't help the situation. Um, and and I, I think th- – at that point in the movie, I'm like, okay, that, that's great. That's a good point. I, I like where we're going. How are you going to end this movie? How are you then going to – what are you going to do with that point in the movie? Mm. And the movie ends at a weird – So, and, and I sort of figure you, you see what yeah. Dixon is doing with the DNA thing. Like I loved that when he scratched yeah. his face like this. What is he doing? Oh, he's getting his DNA. I was super proud of myself for, for figuring that out early on. <laughs> uh, and then he gets and by the, the way, DNA. I heard the women behind me say that. Way later in the scene, they're like, "Oh, that's what they used to." I heard them actually say that too. Oh, about the de- they figured it out as well, but later. Okay, yeah, I figured out pretty, the moment he reached out, the moment he scratched his face, I was like, "Oh, he's getting his DNA under his fingernails." Um, and and so then I figure, well, what we're going to do is we're now going to have these two characters come together, and the fact that they were angry at each other, they get past it, and they catch her daughter's murderer. Mm-hmm. But Martin McDonough doesn't. That's not the story he's yeah. telling, yeah. which is really uh, – I, I was really taken aback when we discover clearly that in movie language that Brendan Fletcher – Brendan Fletcher, whatever that actor's name is. That, that, Brendan that's Sexton the third. Sexton, right, the third, right. Brendan Sexton the third, who generally plays like assholes. I think uh, I know him. Don't Cry. Oh, right. He's also, I think, Don Wiener's antagonist in um, – Welcome uh, to the Dollhouse. In Welcome to the, the Dollhouse, right, yeah. right. <laughs> so he tends to play bullies and bad guys, and it's almost like spoiler by casting. You're like, okay, he's yeah, the murderer. Seriously. And so even when he comes in in that one scene, though, it's clear he's some someone malevolent. Uh, so I figure, yeah, he's going to be the bad guy, and Dixon and Mildred are going to come together, and they're going to get past this idea that anger begets greater anger, and there will be justice, and her daughter's murder will be caught. But that doesn't happen. <laughs> Dingus – why not? What what happened to this movie? Do you have any um, ideas? Like, why did he not give us that ending? Because I think they both realize 
their relative guilt in things. And that this is, I think that their understanding, I, I love, I love her line of, I think her line is, what, what does she say? We'll, de- we'll decide on the way. What no, is we'll it? Decide, what yeah. Say? Yeah. Something like, we'll think about it on the way or we'll decide before we get there or something like that. Yeah. It's like, we'll just think about it on the way. Not let's not do right. this. Let's just think about it on the way. I guess we can decide along the way. And I think that um, in that moment where he's sitting there on the phone with her, I thought for sure he was going to put that gun in his mouth with his mom there in the room and him talking on the phone to her. Oh. And then they I, – I thought for sure that's what was going to go on. That, that, that would we have been one have suicide too many. I mean I think we already had the suicide scene. I, well, well I, I do want to talk about that because I, I think that Martin McDonough does a couple of things in this movie that he's done before, and I'm kind of curious about them. But I think that what they're – kind of coming to an understanding of is we've everybody's guilty about something everybody's guilty for something we've all done things that are wrong i i burned your face you beat you tortured guys uh that were in your custody you threw a guy out a window um i yelled at my daughter i screamed at her i told her i hope she gets raped on the way uh even though that's not what she actually meant. Um, she hasn't exactly been the example of a perfect mom. Uh, and I think they're understanding their guilt. And I think that figuring out whether or not they can mete out justice uh, is not something that is up to them. I think that's what they're kind of figuring out. And and I see them sort of – I see their anger running out of gas. <laughs> Rather than them going on a spree, I don't see this as being, uh, and and that's why I think the, the movie ends the way it does. I I see them kind of running out of gas as they go, uh, and and actually, when you know she says I'm the one to burn you, he's like, well, who else would I? Um, th- there's an understanding of 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 mutual guilt there, and it's not. Maybe, I mean, there are there are gradations of guilt, and certainly, whoever raped and burned and killed her daughter uh, is at a different level than um, somebody who yells at the, her daughter. I hope you get raped on on your way there. In response to what her daughter says, those are not the same thing. We can we can understand that things are not black and white in this regard, but I think that they are sort of realizing this isn't our business and he's not our business. And I think that that's where the movie's going. At least that's how I interpret it. Do you well, have now, a different if, feeling for it? Yeah. Like if you've, cause I, I think it's a deeply, deeply cynical ending. I think it is a very dark oh. ending because w- what you're suggesting, Dingus, I, I mean, that, that's certainly, I'm not, I, I don't want to delegitimize that interpretation because this no, is no, clearly an example of ambiguity and not subtlety. Like, I don't think there's an answer to the question that I'm asking, but I do feel that if they were going to run out of gas, that if, if they weren't going to drive to Idaho and shoot an innocent man, Martin McDonough would have told us that. He clearly oh. wants us to entertain and to leave as a possibility the idea that they're about to go murder an innocent man, and they realize it. Um, and, and yeah, they, they're reconciled to each other, and that's an important part, and that's what the movie wants to end with. But the mm-hmm. movie doesn't want us to know whether or not they're going to murder an innocent man. It does want us to know that he is innocent. It does want us to know that despite you know these damning words that we hear him say in that tavern about gasoline and the woman burning, 
like you, you're clear at that point. Yeah, he's the murderer. Uh, but but DNA evidence and the military vouching for him that he was in fact overseas serving his country, like that right there, I think is clear language that he didn't do it. He's an innocent man, and they are still. By the time the movie ends, they are not turning around. They are still driving to murder with Dixon's mm. shotgun a man who didn't do the crime that they are angry about. And I think that is a very uh, – that is the ultimate point of the movie, literally in terms of it's the last thing that we know about these characters. And I f- – what I call from this, um, this idea that anger begets greater anger, like that's an important lesson that these characters learn. And I also think it's something that is really important to us today. Uh, I am angry that Trump won the election. I am angry that he is enabling uh, racists and and, and xenophobes and Islamophobes and sexists. I'm I'm angry at what he's done to the political climate of our country and to what he has allowed, what he has normalized. This makes me angry, and I'm angry at him. What I think is important to, to, to realize you know, I want to drive around with a bumper sticker that says "fuck Trump" and "fuck you" if you voted for Trump, because I'm also angry at the people who put him in power. Mm-hmm. But the, the lesson of this movie, I think, um, is that we need to be careful where we focus our anger. Uh, Mildred and Dixon, they want the same thing. They are very different people. They have very different understandings of the world. They have very different approaches, but they want the same thing. They just don't know how to go about getting it. They don't know where to focus their anger. You know, I love the fact that we find out that Dixon's mother, you know, that, that sure he's a racist asshole and he he tortured a black man in 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 custody and he has no compunction about calling it torture. You know, <laughs> uh, he's worried about calling him the N word because that's right. but he doesn't mind saying it's torture. Uh, he's a terrible person, but we find out where that terribleness comes from. And in a way, it doesn't excuse what he's done, but it explains why he's done what he's done. Uh, we understand Mildred, but but she does things that are beyond the pale. She's about to go murder someone, maybe, who didn't rape her daughter. Um, so these two characters have come together. They're driven by frustration, and that frustration drives their anger. It drives their motive, and it overwhelms any meaningful purpose that they might have. But a first step is them coming together and understanding they want the same thing. But that is not enough because that anger, despite them being angry at each other, there are still greater evils out there that are worthy of that anger. Mm. They are both – you know, someone burning to death and raping a young woman is worth your anger. You know, that is where your anger should be focused at who has done that. Uh, And if you act out of pure anger and out of frustration without focusing on a sense of purpose, that anger can be directed in the wrong place. Right. And I kind of feel like that's a very important message for us today. It is worth being angry at a man who normalizes uh, racism and xenophobia, at a man who wants at a man who's basically running a kleptocracy with our government and a man who is enriching himself and his family uh, at the expense of our, our democratic process. That's worthy of anger. The people who he deceived into voting for him, the people who watch Fox News who may not know any better, I'm not sure they're worthy of the same kind of anger. 
like I think it's kind of important for people like mm. me who are frustrated with the current current political climate to not direct that anger too much at people who were deluded by by Donald Trump. Um, but I do feel Trump is worthy of that anger. When people say no, you know, uh, move past your anger, accept things. No, there's certain things that you shouldn't accept, and I think this this president embodies a lot of what we shouldn't accept. Um, so at any rate, I think it's a deeply cynical movie that ends with this idea that these these characters who are generally good people, you know, if they're not dead, they're off doing the wrong thing maybe. Um, but this idea that that uh, be careful where you direct your anger, I, I think, is kind of central to the movie. I really like that idea. That idea as a message because I hadn't thought about being careful how you direct your anger. Because if you look at what she's doing and what you had said earlier about. Her directing her anger toward Willoughby, who is essentially yeah. a good man, and how uh, Sam Rockwell is develop is uh, uh, his uh, Dixon is uh, directing his anger toward Red, who is just doing what he thinks is right and also making a living, um, is completely wrongheaded. Um, this makes perfect sense to me because I because of people in my family who. Uh, voted for and um, campaigned for and prayed for uh, uh, Trump and Pence, I, develop, uh, directing anger toward them is not going to do me any good. It's simply not. I'm going to lose contact with people that I love. So how do I do that? What, what do I do with that anger? How do I redirect it? What do I do with it? Um, and what I love about what you said earlier is that this is essentially a movie about good people. Uh, and I think one of the things that makes it less cynical for me at the end is their uncertainty. And that was really profound to me as they were driving. And she said, are you sure about this? And he said, no, I'm not. And he says, are you? And I thought for certain, I, I don't know what happened. I just thought that she's going to say, yeah, let's do this. And she's like, no, I'm not either. This, this, this sense of the two of them, Okay, we're going on this mission. Are you sure we want to do this? No, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. I mean, it, it's a feeling of we've learned, we are learning. It, you know, it's kind of like a tide coming in in a way. Uh, we are it's, learning from the things that we have done wrong so far in this movie. It's really a, has, a glass, half, glass half full, half empty thing, Dingus, isn't right, it? Like, right. yeah. I, my, my, my takeaway is they're not turning around, and your takeaway is at least they realize they should maybe turn around and consider it. Uh, they, they don't know they yet. They don't they, know. It's not like it's not like no, this, no, they do this know. revenge I mean, drama where like, yeah, let's fuck that guy up. It's like, we don't – I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Right, right, right. But they, they do – like they, they do say, you know, obviously he's done something. Like they don't – I, yeah, I just think right. it's such a big deal that they aren't that they don't turn around. That McDonough doesn't show us a movie where they have decided they're not going to they're going to do. The, the fact that they don't turn around is just, I think, an, a, a very important point for me. I do yeah, love okay. that they've reconciled with each other. That they both, but they both realize he didn't do it. They both realize they're driving with a shotgun in the back of a station wagon mm -hmm. to the house of a man hundreds of miles away who did not rape and murder her daughter. They know that. Why don't they turn around? Like that to me is just 
deeply just frustrating uh, as far as wanting this movie to have a, a positive ending. Uh, <laughs> and and you, play. I mean, you're taking away that you're, you're looking at the half glass half full right. side, I think. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm just imagining the one act play where it's just the two of them in the car as they talk about whether or not they're going to keep going and how that back and forth could go. You know, you know, a, a little black box stage where there's two of them are sitting in a car talking about, do we keep going or not? Uh, because it already feels like to me, and again, I think that it is, a, yeah, I, I like your like glass half full, glass half empty thing. Because uh, it does feel like to me, like it, already they're kind of like, if, if already at the beginning of the trip, they're like, should we be doing this? I don't know. <laughs> it feels It feels better to me than it does to you. But I understand that. And that's uh, one of the things, too, that makes this so like a play. Like if this is a movie yeah. – I mean Wind River. Like we, I think we all liked Wind River, but Wind yeah. River, Taylor Sheridan was clearly writing a, a Hollywood screenplay. Like it, it had that same gratifying at the end, and there's comeuppance, and you feel good, and there's terrible things that happen, and people learn things. And uh, like it's a shame Kelly Wan couldn't see this because I think he would love this movie's lack of redemption. Yeah, uh, I think like they, right. they, they're they're they're. I shouldn't say lack of redemption because there is a lot of redemption. They both come a long way, but Kelly Wan would love the lack of a neat ending, a neat it's sort not of an overt. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no. Yeah, exactly. Nobody. The the ultimate comeuppance is is never given. Like this, this central crime here isn't punished, and we don't know who did it. And I find that deeply frustrating in in a movie like this. And that's that's something that Martin. That's you know that's a kind of a playwright thing too. You go to theater not to get a a neat tidy package, but to to be given food for thought like this. Yeah. I mean, let's it's talk about the cast. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, let's talk about the cast. Go ahead. Oh, my God. Uh, Frances McDormand. So so right away, uh, I, she is – because I remembered watching uh, Blood Simple a couple years ago where she's just so young and adorable and pert. And I just am so in love with the lines in her face mm-hmm. and how, how she's <laughs> aging and in a good way. Uh, she just looks so graceful and, and just resolute, and this this performance is amazing. And uh, mm-hmm. just, I love too that we briefly got a, a flashback where her hair was all long because with the back of her hair shaved and in that jumpsuit and wearing a headband, like she looks like a, a prisoner at times. Like she just looks so tough. Um, and it is, it's like a gunfighter's kind of resolution. Uh, but God, she's just so good in this, and and how expressive she is too. That one scene where she's talking to that deer, the range of expressions oh, that her face goes through, and I love too, just just that one scene as a kind of a theological statement. Um, I love movies where characters can say things that sound like they would belong in Shakespeare, but they don't sound out of place. Because when right. she says to this deer, you know, is it, are there no arrests because there's no God and the whole world's empty and it doesn't matter what we do? Like that's something – that's a super ponderous heavy line yeah. that when somebody delivers it, you're like, oh, God, really? That's a how little does, off How the does nose. she get away with that? How does she well, she's get doing it kind that? of dismissively, and she's doing it to the deer, and afterwards she's like, I hope not. And she kind of shrugs, and she does this like wince. Like she knows that it's super heavy thing to be dropping in this situation. Like she's just so – just self-aware of what she's saying and how she's thinking and her face is so expressive and goes through so many different expressions while she's talking to the deer. Um, It reminds me of this super uneven movie I've talked about called Three Priests where Michael Parks gets to yell out something about, you know, and it's very much like, like King Lear. We don't live in a godless universe. Like 
my God, why are you yelling the- theological statements in your little your little drama here? But it works. Like certain actors can make it work, right. and that monologue she has with that deer uh, is just so powerful. And it ends too with this kind of dismissive pop culture shrug about Doritos. <laughs> like, I love that, and it's I think it's just a great bit of writing from uh, Martin McDonough. Uh, just that whole thing, uh, what he's written for her, and the way she does that little sequence with that deer. I loved that. Uh, I'm totally with you on this. Um, I, for me, the the moment, I mean, she is able to do so much within this role. And I, I don't know, when's the last time you saw Fargo? Uh, the TV show. Very not recently. the TV show. <laughs> I, haven't seen TV. The first, I haven't seen the movie in forever. All right. Well, there's this little moment. And I know you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, where she's in uh, – it's the second scene when she's in the uh, office with um, – oh God, what's his name? The guy who's selling the cars who runs the story. Damn it. The guy who's selling the cars who runs the story. William H. Macy? William H. Macy. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. Sorry. I totally – I think blown. of him as Felicity Huffman's husband. Uh <laughs> where he's like, I'm cooperating, and and um, and he gets a, he gets a little pushbacky, and her face changes. She does this little thing with her face, and you see the wrinkles like like just a little bit. And she goes, "There's you got no cause to get snippy with me, Mister Lundegaard." I mean, it's just this little this little thing that she does, and watching that again made me think of all the different things, and I call it getting away with. Um, which probably is unfair, and I don't mean it that way. I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. But she can yell at her daughter. She can be a little bit mean to her son. She can flip cereal at him, but you still feel like <laughs> she loves him. Um, she She's tough. She's got that thing with her hair that you were talking about. She's got this demeanor that makes you feel like um, – at least makes me feel like not only a Western, but that she would be – I would – if, if I had to pick a certain amount of people to uh, go with in a post-apocalyptic world, that would be one of those <laughs> characters. Because I think that she would figure out just about everything, whether it be planting plants or killing deer or talking deer or whatever. Uh, she just has this amazing spectrum of things that she does. And within all of that, this toughness, this this anger uh, – She's still able to show this amazing vulnerability, which is scary in two scenes. It's the one of the scenes is that scene in the um, in the gift shop where she gets scared by Brendan Sexton thir- the third, um, uh, where he throws the the seven dollar rabbit at her, and she's like, "Thank goodness you came in when uh, Abby Cornish comes in, because um, that guy was scaring me." But it's also when her husband comes, her ex husband comes into the house and throws her up against the wall. And she kind of just goes with it. And you can understand this this weird sort of um, strong woman, but still is has this mentality of, uh, in certain times, I'm going to be abused. It, it was a weird moment. She gets thrown up against the wall, and then her you know, son, of, of course, you can understand that there's this whole weird family dynamic that's going on. It's really bizarre um but i love that within her character she can be that strong she can throw molotov cocktails and still be thrown up against the wall by this jerk 
Well, it even shows, I think, before he, he gets physically abusive. When he when he comes in and talks to her, like it's a very different Mildred. She's cowed mm-hmm. in his yeah, presence good. talking to him. And I, I love, too, just the the what she was doing acting-wise there is showing that her relationship to this man is very different than the way she talks to Dixon or Willoughby mm-hmm. or her son. Uh, it's a marked difference, uh, uh, her interaction with him. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and there's there is a very there is a very much a feel of who's the pack leader in these things in yeah, these yeah, situations yeah. because when Dixon says I'm not coming over there come over to my desk and she goes <laughs> right up okay fine <laughs> him, him getting his belt caught on that chair is so adorable oh like, is god it, Tom I mean do they awesome. does stuff like that get set up or does it just happen <sighs> and they keep rolling that just and also Sam Rockwell like stuttering the word mama like he is just ingenious at at, at catching physical yeah. objects or syllables just having them catch on things like his bit about a kite a cat in assassination of jesse mm-hmm. james like sam rockwell getting caught on something whether it's a syllable or physical object is a beautiful thing <laughs> and you wonder how much of that is just him coming up with stuff because like when yeah. he's first driving down the the, the road but right before he sees the billboards he's singing the song and he's going Mow! oh yeah yeah what was that doing thing? that what was that? I don't know. It felt like he had just seen Apocalypse Now. And I know, and, yeah. You mean uh, Deer Hunter. Oh, Deer Hunter. Sorry, yeah. He just seen Deer Hunter. He's just like yelling Mao in the middle of this song that has no – it has no space in that. He's just uh, – Martin, I'm going to do this. Yeah, right, yeah. Sam, that was so it. odd. I forgot. That had no payoff or explanation or nope, anything. Not uh, at all. And even yeah, the bit about uh, you know the the bad laws, environmental laws, like when he's explaining to that guy what he could charge him with. I just love me some some <laughs> some stammering Sam Rockwell. Yep. Nobody stammers yep, yep, like yep. him. Not even Vince Vaughn can stammer like Sam Rockwell. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about and and also just. Uh, I just it's so refreshing to you know thinking he's going to just play the jerk bad guy. It's it's such a relief for the movie to come around and you can realize oh you know what it's going to be okay for me to like this character. Like I was so glad, yeah. kind of relieved for that to happen in the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when he faints, when he finds out that Willoughby died. That's such a great touch when he's leaning on uh, Yvonne. Uh, say that guy's J- name Jelko, for me. Jelko Ivanek. Jelvo, Jel, yeah, him. Jelko. <laughs> Yeah. Like when he's leaning on him, and uh, when Jelko says, "Are you going to faint again?" He's like, "No." He's the guy that Colin Farrell punches in in Bruges in the restaurant. Well, Dingus, I go way back with Jelk Van Vandermeer. Uh, that guy was from <laughs> is from I think Oz on HBO. Like I've known oh. him. he's been around forever. Uh, well, I knew him from Law and Order. I think those kinds of shows. Oh, you might beat me. You might trump thing. me. Then that might predate Oz, Dingus. All right, that's right. He's, you watch network TV. I forget. He's supposedly the Canadian in in Bruges that uh, that Colin Farrell punches the heck right. out of. Right. Uh, uh, I, I love too part- that uh, <laughs> that <laughs> don't. Don't say what when someone comes in here and calls you a fuckhead, Dixon. Like, <laughs> I love just how he's such a martinet. Like he's just so incensed that Dixon says what in response to the word fuckhead. <laughs> like, he cannot believe that Dixon lets that slip. <laughs> it's so hilarious. And then the new guy comes in, Clark Peters, and says, uh, you really want to see my documentation, fucker? I mean, I love that guy. The, Clark Peters, yeah, we know him from John Wick, but uh, you yeah, like okay. I if I think those of us dingus who've seen more than a couple of episodes of The Wire have a lot more baggage with who Clark Peters is. That guy is great. Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I love that guy. I love that guy. So happy to hear Abby Cornish's actual accent, because dingus, as you might know, I 
I enjoyed her very much in Geostorm, where she she was the one of the few actors to actually sound American without screwing up the word anything. And in this movie, Martin McDonough's like, you know what? Fine, go ahead, be Australian. We don't care. And we're not going to even tell you why yeah. he met you. Who yeah. cares? Yeah, don't 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 fuss. Just talk like you talk, and uh, yeah, and they have some great little scenes together. Uh, all right, so let's talk Woody Harrelson. Dingus, have you seen Edge of Seventeen yet? I haven't. No, sorry. <sighs> all right, well, you're not really qualified to address <laughs> the breadth of Woody Harrelson's career yet, but um, <laughs> so you wanted to talk about the suicide thing. You, you said specifically, uh, or you were going to mention things, things that Martin McDonough does, or what? There's the the, my main thing is the midget thing. I don't understand what his deal is. It makes sense in In Bruges, and it's used to good effect. It's understandable, and it's part of the plot. Um, I don't understand the harping on it here. Because uh, one of the things I really love about Station Agent is that they don't make a big deal about that except in one scene. Uh, well, Tom McCarthy did a Station Agent for a Dwarf. Right. Right. Yeah. So what is – Mark McDonough doing, and he's also got this weird suicide thing that he does. Um, so, this is like thing really so affected the, me in this movie. I mean, it actually broke me down pretty hard because I was not expecting this to happen. I was not expecting the movie to go this way. Uh, and when he puts that thing on his head after he's talked about the horses with his wife, and after they've had that day, I was like, oh no, 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 no. Um, it, it really hit me hard. I don't know why it hit me so hard, but it hit me really hard. Uh, but it's also a thing that goes on in In Bruges. Um, and I just don't, and then the midget thing as well. And also the characters who are reading a book, like in, uh, in In Bruges, I think Brendan Gleeson's character is reading a Flannery O'Connor book. And in this, Woody Harrelson is reading some book. No, no, in this, in this movie. Uh, Woody Harrelson's reading a Flannery O'Connor book for some reason, uh, and Brendan Gleeson is reading another book that's obviously some sort of a classic. So he's got certain he's got certain like notes that he plays. Uh, I don't understand the midget thing. Uh, I'm okay with the suicide thing, but it really hit me hard in this. So the three things I think the Flannery, it, it's, we've said before many times on this podcast, anytime a character is reading a book or listening to a lecture or something, uh, the director obviously came up with what that should be. And I think the Flannery O'Connor stuff here uh, is pretty clear. Like Flannery O'Connor wrote about justice and retribution and very gothic stories about small communities, rural communities in the South. Uh, mm. I think Flannery O'Connor would be very comfortable watching this, and uh, I don't doubt that Martin McDonough admires Flannery O'Connor's short stories. You can you can tell that from what he's done here. So I think that is just to say, and hey, this is some of my source material. This is my inspiration, I think. Okay. So uh, now the, the midget thing, I mean, I don't. It's kind of just a. Does, is, does the midget lure him to Clement's posy? Like, I forget what the whole thing is where they're making a movie with midgets and in Bruges. Is it just, hey, it's wacky that they're shooting a movie with midgets? Or does the midget become a main character? I forget. What's the. At first, it's, it's just um, Ray, Colin uh, Farrell's character, is talking about, uh, you know, history. I always hated history. Didn't you hate history? It's just a bunch of stuff that I already have. Hey, hey, they're shooting something over there. Hey, they're shooting midgets. They're filming midgets, right, and he right. runs but over it, there, just, and it's just like a gag at first, and then they bring him in, and he's on ketamine because the woman that Colin Farrell falls in love with has been selling drugs to everybody, right? and then they wind up in a room with him, and then, of course, it pays off at the end of the movie in a, a very weird way. Um, 
and it, and it has to be specific to that guy's size, the way that that pays off. I don't want to give it away because I think in Bruges is really worth watching, but it, it has a, there's a reason for it throughout the movie. At first it just feels like it, a silly gag, but then it pays off throughout the movie. I'm not quite sure how it works out here or why he's perseverating on it. Well, as a I, writer. I'm, I'm glad to see uh, Peter Dinklage getting work, A. And yeah. B, okay. I don't think you can cast Peter Dinklage without commenting on the fact that, that he's – is, is, so I forget. Is dwarf or midget the more dismissive way to put it? A, a dwarf is the more politically correct way to put it. We're not supposed to say midget. Okay, right. But, uh, but they, say it, they say it in this movie as they say you know, uh, gay or whatever, and they do that in, in Bruges as well. But I don't think you can have uh, – you can cast Peter Dinklage without referencing for some reason a very prominent physical fact about him. It's right. Just, okay. It's just the situation. Um, but I also think for part of the reason that Tom McCarthy just d- decided it worked so well in Station Agent is this idea of someone representing the other, something completely different from normal experience. It's mm-hmm. a way of doing it without it being as charged as – you know, using a black person, I, I think, uh, is here's a character who is clearly somehow physically marked as outside the community. And how do people treat him? You know, is he just resigned to being made fun of? And he's kind of weary and beat down and he's accustomed to the fact that he's going to be rejected. Uh, I think it's just a kind of a, a shorthand way to see how brutal the community can be to people who are perceived as other or outsiders mm-hmm. in a way. Um well, Clark Peters, once he shows up, he's not referred to as a black dude, is he? No, but there are, you know, clearly, you know, this is this is Missouri. There, there are clearly lots of black folks around, and you know, the, the well, there's the two the, the two black people, the two other black people in the movie end up being together. <laughs> I mean, they just sort of drift together. I I think that's kind of obvious, but it's not like like talking about the midget or talking about the dwarf becomes obvious, but they don't talk about Clark Peters in that way, is what I'm saying. But I understand what I kinda I right, get what it, you're saying, but do you think Clark Peters being black is a significant point though? I mean it's clearly not lost on on Sam Rockwell's character. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um but I, I just think that if you want to use Peter Dinklage, and I'm glad that they are, uh, it just has to be part of his character. And this if mm. you're if you're going to have a midget in this small community in Ebbing, Missouri, people like Sam Rockwell are going to make fun of him, you know? Uh, it's just it's just a, something he's going to have to deal with. And when he goes out on a date, and the woman's not interested in him, naturally he's going to assume, oh well, it's because I'm a midget and I'm, uh, you know, I've got all these issues. And uh, I I think it just kind of makes him more of a sad sack, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it is it is an odd point of commonality with in Bruges, isn't it? I, I did think of that. They're filming midgets line. Yeah. yeah. Um, he makes a point of it when he's talking about like I'm holding up the ladder. It makes me feel outside myself. I didn't know if that was a gag about looking up her skirt, but she wasn't wearing a skirt, so it obviously wasn't. I think it was about – it was a joke about being tall. Ah, very good. Yep, that works. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then I this, think it was also like maybe covering for looking at her butt because he was into her. Right, which it works much better if she's wearing a skirt, but she had on that prison jumpsuit thing. Right. Very unflattering, by the way, that uh, outfit. <laughs> Uh, so most most in most movies, suicide and actually in reality is a bit of a dick move. Uh, yeah. So here we we had our three by three about uses of cancer, and here I love that early on the movie sets up 
the central conflict as between somebody whose daughter was murdered and somebody who has cancer. And it's sort of like, oh my God, both of these people are are uh, tragic. You know, who do you? There, mm. There's no. There's no easy person to root for in this situation. Like in addition to realizing they're both good people, they both have incredibly tragic situations. Uh, and you know, one of the outcomes is unresolved. We don't know who killed her, her daughter. She has to deal with this frustration. Uh, but I really did admire like, – like normally I think of suicide like in that – is it the hours where Ed Harris throws himself out the window? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, God, that's such a dick move, and he does it right in front of his friend. And like, oh, you asshole. I mean, I know you have age, but what a terrible way to do it. I now hate your character. You're a jerk. Um, I, I felt completely the opposite here. Like, I mm. love how he carefully engineered the, the, the final memory that his wife and children would have about him. Uh, and, and his explanation, too, about, about bravery uh, and what he wanted to avoid. I mean, it's it makes a great case, I think, for physician-assisted suicide uh, is that rather than draw out his misery and inflict it on his wife and children and have that – their memory of him, be, him being reduced and, 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 and falling apart physically, uh, like this was the choice he made. Uh, I mean it is a, it's a powerful moment, and it's devastating. Uh, but as far as the way it was written and this character's decision, I kind of admired it in a way. Well, if if you watch and remember what happens in, in Bruges, both both instances are matters of principle, basically. Uh, the, deciding to take your life is a matter of principle, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what he's doing here. It was just it. No matter what happens, um, no matter how carefully you orchestrate it, no matter what you write in your notes and whatnot, you don't know that your daughters aren't going to wander out there and find you. You don't know that somebody's not going to pull that thing off your head. You're just doing what is. The thing is, there's to... a note. No one's going to. There's a note that clearly <laughs> said, "Don't take the bag off." Well, those horses might very well. Do. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> maybe the thing is, maybe his daughters aren't old enough to read. Yeah, like, did you think of that? <laughs> uh, is it? I have a dumb question for you. Uh, is the letter to Dixon from her or from oh, him? Dingus, that's a Kelly Wand level question. What are you talking I know. About? Well, somebody has to represent. It's from it's from him. He he does he anticipating what's going to happen in in his death in the absence of his authority. He writes letters to Dixon to to uh, to Mildred to his wife. Um, but she uses it to lure him there, and it doesn't sound the same. She uses she uses that letter. She gets she delivers she the letter to the well, station. These are Kelly Wan level things. Uh, Ivan Jelakovich, what's his name? Jelkvin Ivalich, um says, "I'll leave it here for you and drop off your keys." Like he's wanting to avoid the right. awkward moment he of says, giving back your keys. He says she, she delivered this letter to you at the office. Abbott, Annie did. Oh, Annie did. I thought yeah, it was wife did. Mildred who did. No, because it's important that oh, Mildred right. doesn't think she's firebombing anybody in there. She's calling to make sure nobody's in the police station. She no, thinks no, she's, she firebombing. Knows she's firebombing him. No, she doesn't. Yes, she does. Why would she firebomb the office if the file is in there? Because she's mad about the cop. What do you, you think that she's trying to burn Sam Sam Rockwell up? Yes. What? 
Dingus, you're crazy. She's not a murderer. <sighs> she thinks that he's burned down her signs. And so she's going to burn him down? No, she's burning down yes. the police station. Hmm. All right. Well, now I have to see the movie again. Great. No, now I have to see it again. Now you're making me doubt fine. it. I thought that was why she called to make sure no one was there. But she does seem like she's expecting a she response. She calls over and over and over again because of the – I thought – okay. Hmm. Well, I really thought that she was just doing uh, damage. She was just wanting to trash the police station. I didn't think – Why? Because that, that means she's trying to kill um, – Yeah, because he Rockwell. burned down her signs. She's going to murder someone for burning down the signs. She's. I like her even less now. Dingus, right. she's not that flawed. Well, okay, then I'm wrong about that. I might be wrong about that too. Like I, 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 I really thought that she was just, and that she was aghast when she discovers that she's in there, that he's in there. Um, yeah, we're gonna. Dingus, clearly, we're gonna have to see this a second time. All right, fair, fair enough. I have no problem with that, by the way. Uh, do you know who Samara Weaving is? I do not know who Samara Weaving. She plays is. a character named Penelope in this movie. Well, uh, I know she, that she's Penelope in this because yeah. So she's Hugo Weaving. Know. She's Hugo Weaving's niece, and you wouldn't know this, but she was just in a really crappy horror movie called Mayhem, which I don't recommend. But she's in another less crappy horror thriller comedy uh, called The Babysitter, directed by uh, a fellow we all know and admire named McGee. What? <laughs> Don't snicker. Uh, the babysitter isn't that great, but she is amazing in it. Uh, the, and you'll be seeing a lot more of her. She's in a, a TV remake of uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock um, with, I think, Abby Lee. Um, but she, I love her. Uh, she didn't get much to do here. She's basically comic relief. But uh, the babysitter is super uneven, but she is so completely committed to questionable material in the babysitter uh, <laughs> that you can't help but admire her. Uh, and she's she, willing to just do crazy, unflattering stuff. Is she always this vapid, or does she do, do other things? Nope. She's super sharp in uh, the babysitter. Not oh, vapid good. at all. Yeah. So definitely, yeah, she – oh, she definitely does other things. Yeah, this whole thing that she's doing here, uh, Vapid is not, as far as I know, her usual shtick. Uh, yeah, she's definitely got Hugo Weaving. Like, you cast Hugo Weaving when you want something who's super sharp, like almost preternaturally intelligent. And she's got that same kind of thing going for her. Normally. Oh, wow. That's impressive then because that's not easy to play dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, exactly. I'm not, being, I'm not being – No, no. It's like, like Sam Rockwell in this. Like Sam Rockwell yeah. playing dumb is as so – it's as calculated as him, as him stuttering. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. Very good. Oh, very good. Very well put. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I liked her. I liked her a lot. Well, I liked just... Sandy Martin as well. I thought she was great as the mom. Um. Does she look like Meatloaf to you, or is that just me? Meatloaf the actor. No, (laughs) not the substance. No, not the (laughs) substance, right, no. (laughs) What's Meatloaf's real name? We know this by now, don't we? His name is, never mind. You were going to say Robert Paulson, Dingus. Yeah, sorry. What is his real name? Don't we know Meatloaf's real name by now? I don't know, it's uh, Robert Zimmerman. Is that true? You no, don't know your true name. I don't believe. Name. I don't believe for a second. I was a little confused, by the way, that Red's last name sounded a lot like Willoughby. Yeah, I was with you on that because at first <laughs> I thought, oh wait, he's his son, and that whole scene where he's got his feet up on the desk. Yeah, like that son. It doesn't seem like a very father-son scene. Yeah. <laughs> no, it does not. And by the way, it was a, it was really a relief to see Caleb Leonard Jones in this after we had to see him in American Made. 
because I just I was I couldn't abide him in that. And it was not his fault. I just didn't like the way that movie was written. But I loved him in this. I loved his. Go ahead. It, no, no, go ahead. Well, and especially him too. Like, uh, like he's kind of a weird guy, but especially that he gets that reconciliation scene with Sam Rockwell, where he kind of mm-hmm. breaks down and he doesn't, rather than creating this cycle of anger. I mean, he's not that kind of character, but where Sam Rockwell's a, uh, just a little taken aback that he still brings him orange juice. Like, I love right. that Caitlin Landry Jones got to do that and got to play like a normal, compassionate character who wasn't just a freak that was so good <laughs> and i kind of like the way that was shot um there's this clever thing that uh, uh i don't know who did the cinematography for this i uh, did but uh, but i'll give martin uh the credit for it uh where he's shooting through um this uh the gauze and it's, it's called it's bandage cut view Bandage you, yeah. but then it, after that scene of the orange juice, the next scene is uh, the dude showing up to her door uh, to say that he has, you know, when we put up these billboards, we have extras. But the next view is her looking through the hole in the door, the the, ah, eye, right. the eye view, and it's almost the same view except without the gauze, but right. it's the same sort of. It captures the same kind of view, and it kind of looks at their perspectives um, matched together scene by scene, which I really liked. Yeah, for the most part. It's a minor thing, but I really like that. Right. I mean, I think for the most part, this did feel like like he – I love Martin McDonough as a director, but I think clearly his priority is on uh, his script and his actors and not Mm. any clever stylistic choices or shooting. (laughs) Like he doesn't do Coen Brothers kinds of things. He's not aping that, which I'm kind of – I'm totally okay with. Uh, Like uh, those billboards being big and red, like that was a cool sort of visual flash. But otherwise it was kind of – I don't want to say pedestrian because that sounds dismissive, but but the way it was shot was just kind of matter of fact. There, there was nothing flashy, you know, that little bandage view. There were occasional things like that, uh, mm-hmm. but he's just a very no nonsense director. He clearly wants to focus on his script and his actors, uh, and I really admire that. Yeah, Dingus, here's one issue I have though with Martin McDonough as a writer. Uh, we, I'm from Arkansas, and Arkansas is Missouri adjacent. So for all intents and purposes, you could say I'm from Missouri. Nobody in Arkansas, and I seriously doubt in Missouri, says the C word that often. That is a British thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That C word does not get rolled out in the South that often, Mr. McDonough. You and your – I don't is he Irish or Scottish or British or do we know? I think he might be Irish. I don't know, but he makes fun of the English English language or the ability of a character to use the English language in this movie and in Inbridge. I mean, he says that here. He's he's like, you know, uh, I think Dixon says, if you want to be a, a cop, then you have to know English, or if you want to do anything, really, unless you want to wind up in Macon. Right. And he wants that. Um, and, and in Bruges, the same thing happens with Colin Farrell's character. Right, right. When Brendan Gleeson basically says to him, look, you could, you're, you're going to go away for seven years. You could learn a new language. And he's like, I, you can barely do English. Oh. <laughs> So I think I think you're right to call that out. I think that the C word is it feels weird here. I do. I mean, I, I yeah, it feels weird. But, uh, you know, at least Francis McDormand could handle it, I, I will say. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It does feel a little bit like hitting over the head with a bat, but it's a funny bat. So I'm fine with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, Dingus, we don't have Kelly Wan to say anything inappropriate about any of the characters. What <laughs> I don't I mean, I, maybe we might get something about. 
because there's not a lot of cheesecake here. I guess Samara Weaving, maybe he would say something inappropriate about her. I don't know. I don't know. So in lieu of that, uh, we're just going to have to end the podcast. We will. No three by three. Uh, Kelly Wan's away for uh, next week as well, which means, Dingus, we get to see something without any consideration for whether or not it's playing in Germany. Ooh. So we will not be doing any Justice League nonsense. We're not going to be do. We're not going to do Pixar's next movie. So I was telling you about that Pixar thing, and you were making fun of it. Um, I think uh, I'd forgotten a Good Dinosaur. Like like Pixar, oh. they might be just cranking out Good Dinosaur levels of movies these days. Normally, I'd be super excited about a Pixar movie, but. Good dinosaur kind of uh, threw cold water on that. So we're not doing the Pixar movie next week. Um, so, Dingus, tell the listeners what we will be seeing. Oh, gosh, I totally forgot. What are we seeing? It's the uh, oh my gosh. It's the Lyndon B. Johnson's uh, wife. No, biopic. we're not seeing. No, we're not doing that. No, <laughs> there is not. a Lyndon B. Johnson biopic, by the way. Is it? <laughs> does Woody Harrelson play LBJ? <laughs> I forget, but there's definitely an he LBJ does. biopic. He does but, actually. Yeah. But we are we are seeing something about his wife. No, we're seeing Lady Bird, which has nothing to do with uh, Lyndon Johnson's wife. <laughs> uh, so join us for that. If we will not be doing a three by three, keep working on your three by three of favorite instances of a character saying the word no, preferably according to Dingus, shouting it. You have plenty of time. You've got a couple weeks to send those into 3x3 at quarter3.com. If you've seen Lady Bird, and I know this applies to a few of you out there, uh, let us know what you thought. Send in a few comments to 3x3 at quarter3.com with a separate subject header, and we'd love to know what you thought of uh, Lady Bird. Sorry we couldn't give you guys any notice about uh, the three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, This was a a last-minute switch. Um, But uh, join us next week for our Lady Bird podcast, and uh, let us know what you thought of it. I am Tom Chick. I have not been joined by Kelly Wand, but I have been joined by Christian Merlonski. It's Christian Merlonski. You need to know English if you want to be a podcaster. If you want to be anything, really. I prefer that we be more capable and prepared than lucky. Observation, reflection, faith, and determination. In this way, we may navigate the path as it unfolds before us. All right? And we have, what, eight more recharge cycles to go before we get to Aurigai 6? Is that a question, sir? Yes, Walter, that's a question. That is correct. I'll just keep saying dumb shit till you crack.